Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Bald Guy Podcast with your host, Jeff Brown, and our guest, David Schaefer. Jeff Brown here with my guest, David Schaefer. David, thanks for joining me. Good to be here, Jeff. A lot of people ask me about whole life insurance and tax-free borrowing from the cash value. I tell them it's a completely different breed of cat than the EIUL strategy, especially when it comes to the results. Would you please go over differences between the two policies for them? Absolutely, because I get this question a lot, too. I think the easiest way to understand the difference is really to go back to when Universal Life was first designed and implemented, which was the 1970s. Now, whole life's been around for a few hundred years. It's got all sorts of guarantees for the death benefit side of things. But traditionally, the internal rates of return have been around 2 to 2.5%. Two so a gentleman by the name of E.F. Hutton really liked it as a tool for his wealthier clients. He liked the fact that you could take money out of it in a tax-exempt way. And, uh, but he was really, really unhappy with that 2 to 2.5%. Two he was a, a Wall Street brokerage firm, and he was expecting a lot higher returns than that in the 1970s. So he got together with a buddy of his who ran an insurance company in New Jersey, and they invented universal life. And they, they did it so that you could do a couple things. One, that you would have a lot of variability with the premium you pay. In other words, you could pay premium one month, not pay it the next month. You can pay more one, one month, less one month. You just have a lot of flexibility with the premium. But the most important difference that they put in there was that you could invest in things that E.F. Hutton liked to invest in, like the Wall Street things like mutual funds and stocks and bonds and things like that. And you did that with sub-accounts. And so what that allowed him to do for his wealthier clients is for them to put money inside these life insurance products and to get decent rates of return and then take it out when they needed it with not having to worry about the IRS. And he was very concerned with the direction that the tax rates for his wealthier clients was going in the 1970s, and so he was very happy with this. And so that was the first universal life policy. It was what we now call variable universal life with the ability to invest within different categories like mutual funds and stocks and bonds and things like that. The IRS first took a look at this in 1983. They were, of course, <laughs> they were uh, pretty adhorred at what they were seeing. People were putting a ton of cash in this and just carrying a little bit of life insurance. So they came up with a set of rules and regulations. They revisited it again in 1985 or 86, and uh, they have uh, standardized it all for us. So we now know exactly how much life insurance you have to take to have it called life insurance given the amount of premium you're putting in. And, of course, since then, since the 1970s, we now have Equity Index Universal Life, which started in the 1990s, which uh, takes away some of the issues that the Variable Universal Life has with being a market-driven product and having those big down years. But the key takeaways is that he did this so that you could get higher rates of return within your, your policy. And he also did it so you have a lot of variability. There's variability on how much death benefit you take. There's variability on how much premium you pay and when. And so those are kind of key takeaways. So when you when you think about the two products, if you're looking for a death benefit that's guaranteed, you want to go with whole life. Got to use that tool correctly. If you're looking for something that you want to take money out of eventually, it's going to have a higher internal rate of return, then you're going to be on the universal life side and specifically with the equity index universal life. So that kind of encapsulizes the two differences there. That is very, very succinct, Dave. Appreciate it. 
You mentioned the internal rate of return of the whole life policies averaging over the last few decades about 2.5% or so. What has been the performance on that stage for EIULs? Well, my favorite company, Minnesota Life, has had an EIUL going on over 13 years now. And about a year ago, I, I ran all the numbers on the actual returns within those. So for 12 years, the previous 12 years, in other words. And uh, for their S&P 500 option, with the cap rates, what they were that year, and with the actual returns, that were that year, and you were at just just a little bit above 8.5 percent for those previous 12 years. Now remember, those previous 12 years weren't the greatest ones within the stock market. Um, the stock market itself didn't do that well, but within the EIUL, you got let's just call it 8.5 percent, rounded down a little bit. So, okay, all right, uh, that, that's that's the perfect answer. Does it make sense to have? Both types of insurance, whole life and an EIUL, Dave? Well, they're used for different things, I believe. I think that there is a place for whole life, and I think it's here. If you are extremely successful financially and you have to work about a state, worry about state taxes, so let's just say that the way you're going, you've been very successful, you're in your 60s, maybe early 70s, you have an estate that has a lot of illiquid assets, maybe in the 10 to $20 million range, and you're saying, well, if myself and my spouse die, how are my heirs going to be able to afford the estate taxes for this? And so there's a little trick of the trade. You get the whole life policy, you make a single premium payment to it, and you get the death benefit guarantee on that. So you go to your accountant and say, hey, what do you think my likely estate taxes are going to be? He'll give you a number. You take out an insurance that's around that number. You set it on option B, so the amount of insurance is going to increase on an annual basis, and you're going to put that product inside a life insurance trust. So it's now no longer part of your estate. You're going to have to assign a separate trustee, and you're going to relinquish control of that policy to the trustee. So when you and your spouse die, that's outside of your estate. So let's just say you have farmland, you have a couple of apartment buildings, you own a business, and you have some uh, thinly traded private-owned stocks and things like that, that if you were to have to get rid of that in a fire sale situation upon your death to pay taxes, that you would t your heirs would take a serious hit on that. You don't have to do that because you have that life insurance paying out into the trust, which now is outside of the estate, and the trustee has been instructed to give that to your heirs, and they use that cash, that liquidity, to pay the estate taxes. So that's one place where the death benefit guarantee is very, very useful. The fact you pay a single premium is very, very useful. And the fact that you can put it inside a life insurance trust, get it outside your state, is very useful. And they would use the EIUL at that point, like you said earlier, very well, just for tax-free income and retirement. Right, and there's a, here's a, a, a key point. If you were to put your EIUL into that life insurance trust, you would have to relinquish control to it, and you'd no longer be able to use it for retirement income. So I do occasionally have clients that call me up and say, hey, you know, I heard about putting it into a trust. Will that work for me? And always the answer is, well, if you want to use this for retirement income, no. You have to own it personally. You can't put it inside a trust and relinquish control. Perfect. If an EIUL policyholder had a rough year with their income. What happens with this policy? Well, the short answer is nothing. 
because assuming you have some cash value built up in there, in other words, you're not within the first couple months of uh, paying, you simply use the cash value to pay the expenses within that. Now, let me give you an example. Traditionally, when I set mine up, within the first 10 years, the expenses run somewhere around 25% of what you're paying in premium. So let's just say you're paying $2,000 a month in premium. The expenses are worth $500 a month. So you would have an option. You can decrease it down to $500 a month and just pay the expenses and then catch up at a later date. Or you can say, I'm really having this situation here, and you can stop paying altogether for a period of time. And assuming you have cash value built in there, and almost all of mine do because we, we set things up early on to put cash in there, then you just live off the cash value in there until whatever has happened clears, and you can start catching up at a later date. Now, when I say catch up, that means that over time you can catch up what you missed. You don't have to do that. But if it's early on within the policy, I always suggest you make an attempt to do that. But if it's later on, it doesn't really matter at that point. There's a lot of flexibility built into premium, especially on the downside. Also, let's just say you get to age 60. You're planning on paying premium right up to retirement age, to 67. And you say, I'm done at 60. I'm done. I'm quitting my job. I got enough assets. What happens then? You're good to go. You can simply start stop paying premium and start taking money out as you need it. Because you paid all those years, you're, you're clear and go. So there's a lot of flexibility built into when you stop paying premium, too, and when you decide to start taking inputs out of it. Perfect. Thanks. Before an EIUL reaches maturity, Dave, and begins generating all this really cool tax-free income in retirement, can the policyholder borrow from it? Generally speaking, after year one, you can borrow it. Now, recently, some of my favorite companies have done something with that borrowing the first five years because there are people out there trying to sell these products as an arbitrage opportunity where you put money in, you immediately take it back out and living off the arbitrage. That's very dangerous in the first few years of this until you have some cash value built up. So what they do is they limit the way you borrow money out after year one. You have to do it on a fixed rate until year five. And all that means is that uh, you're not going to be able to use that arbitrage uh, to your advantage if you were to borrow money out in the first five years. But you most certainly can in an emergency situation. You borrow it out for a fixed rate loan. Let's just say you have $20,000 of cash value built in there. You need $10,000 for a new roof. Pull it out. Pay it back when you can. And they could do that after the first year. They don't have to wait five years to repair their roof. No, no. The five years is simply to do the variable loans which allows you some positive and negative arbitrage opportunity, you can do it with a fixed-rate loan as soon as year one is done. Perfect. Would you please explain the four years and a day premium approach? Also, who would choose that method and why would they choose it? I'll address the, uh, the last first. Typically, my clients that choose that method are folks that have a good amount of assets that they have on board already, and so they want to get as much money as they can as quick as possible into their policy and be done with it. In other words, uh, typically these folks are late 40s, early 50s to late 50s, sometimes early 60s, um, and let's just say they have a half a million dollars. They want to get into the policy as quick as possible. Well, as quick as possible, according to the IRS and IRS rules, would be four years and one day. 
and it would be five equal payments. And that's the way I do it. There are some alternatives where you can make four larger payments and the fifth payment is a little bit smaller, but I don't see any real advantage to that. I've run the numbers both ways. There's no real advantage. So I think it's much much simpler and easier and more current to what the IRS is looking for just to make those five equal payments. So if you're putting $500,000 in, you make your first payment of $100,000 when you start the policy, and one year later you make another $100,000, two years, another $100,000, three years, another $100,000, four years, your last $100,000, and then you're done paying premium. And then you just let it sit there and do its work, and when you want to use it, you can. Very good. Boy, this has been nothing but steak and taters, man. Thanks so much for joining us, David. We'll catch everybody next time. Thanks a lot, Jeff, and uh, all you folks out there, happy investing. Thanks for listening to the Bald Guy Podcast with Jeff Brown and our guest, David Schaefer.